We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Today's topic is the misguided gun legislation, the compromise, quote-unquote, that's coming out of our House and our Senate. The bottom line is this. You can come up with endless new laws, but until we start teaching our kids to be men and women of character, it doesn't matter. All we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on the cancer. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. I appreciate your loyalty. Today's topic is gun legislation, the Second Amendment, the Constitution, and whether or not all citizens of voting age have the right to avail themselves of that Second Amendment that the government shall not infringe upon the rights of any citizen to keep and bear arms because a well-regulated militia is necessary to free society. I've talked about what that means, what a well-regulated militia means. I've talked about that in a previous show. You know, they're trying to tell you, the left tries to tell you, the progressives try to argue that that means that only the National Guard or those that are in professional military service have the right to keep and bear arms. That that is a reference to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, and the National Guard. Well, that's garbage. That's garbage because that amendment was put in place because our Founding Fathers recognized the threat of the government upon the private citizen and that a well-regulated militia, which was comprised of all private citizens that had arms because they lived predominantly in rural America at the time, and they needed arms in order to go about their daily lives. And those arms weren't restricted by the government. And therefore, our Constitution guaranteed those citizens the right to keep and bear those arms and to use them in self-defense if the need ever came about. To defend themselves from who? The king, the government, the oligarchs, those people that would try to take away their personal liberties. That's the context for the well-regulated militia. And our Supreme Court has found, generally speaking, that that definition that I just gave you is accurate and defensible. They've ruled in recent days... In the last couple decades, they've ruled in favor of the well-regulated militia being the private citizen and the individual, and therefore some of these laws that have been passed in Washington, D.C., for example, or Chicago, which restrict the individual citizen's right to keep and bear arms, have been found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So I'm not just out there as a layman, as a Uh, as a radio show show host or a podcaster or a writer for the Washington Times or a former university president popping these ideas off. No, the Supreme Court of the United States essentially agrees with what I just said. 
Well, because of these crises that we've seen in the news recently in New York, i.e. Buffalo, as well as in Texas, etc., we've seen some more shootings where a deranged young person enters into a public venue, whether it be a school or a shopping center or a church or whatever. We've seen it happen over and over again over the course of the last several years. This person enters into this setting and he starts shooting people. The immediate call is to disarm everybody that's just been shot, and therefore that'll solve the problem. Take arms away from the law-abiding citizens, because they're the ones who are going to comply with these new laws, right? What in the world makes you think that the individual who isn't complying with the law now is going to all of a sudden start doing so once you pass new laws? This doesn't make any logical sense. It also sidesteps the entire issue, which is what I want to talk about today. And the issue is this. I've said it before. You can come up with tons of new laws, but new laws will not make your culture more moral. You have to teach morality, virtue. You have to teach those things that matter, those first things. You have to teach truth with a capital T to your kids as they grow up, if you want them to be virtuous people. But if you sever the organ and then demand the function, if you cut out their soul and demand that they be virtuous, you're not going to find that it works very well. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, we've created men without chests. We've severed the organ. We've cut out their heart, their soul. And then we demand of them virtue. He said it's not going to work very well. It's like gelding the stallion and then bidding him be fruitful. If you sever the organ and demand the function, you're going to find impotence. And that's what we've done to our kids as we've raised them in a value-neutral educational system. And I've said before, there's no such thing as value-neutral education. You're going to teach something. You're going to teach immorality or you're going to teach morality. You're not going to successfully sidestep these issues. And we see that proven in spades on a daily basis right now. We've raised an entire generation of moral amputees. We've severed the organ and we demand the function. Like I said, we've cut out their soul and then we expect of them virtue, uh, dignity, Uh, tolerance. We demand the good things of them when we just told them that there's no such thing as an objective good or an objective evil. Why in the world would you expect them to behave morally, ethically, responsibly? Why would you expect good citizens when you've taught them that good citizenship is a ruse? Why would you expect them to honor the ideas that make America different than other countries when you've told them that America isn't any different than any other country and that it is nothing but a nation to be embarrassed by, to be torn down, deconstructed, and then built back up in the image of the woke and the righteous. I mean, I could go on and on. Our educational system has created a generation of moral amputees because we've told them that there is no such thing as morality. We laugh. We laugh in the face of moral instruction, and then we bemoan the fact that we have kids entering into schools, churches, and shopping centers 
acting immorally to the point where they actually kill people. We've created a culture of death by virtue of abortion and euthanasia, diminishing the very dignity of what it means to be a human being. We've told our kids that they're nothing, they're nothing other than evolved animals, that they really have no moral distinction above the dog, the pig, the cat, or the cow. And then we turn around and we are somewhat chagrined when they act in the very fashion that we told them. They're acting like animals because we told them that's what they are. Again, that's what I want to talk about after the break. We need some heroes. We need virtue. We need men and women of character. And you're not going to get it if you laugh. If you laugh at the traditional virtues of what it means to be a man or a woman of character. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. So, this issue of uh, more laws. Uh, This is a deeper dive into this particular topic. I've talked about it in a previous show a week or so ago. I think it was where, no, it was two weeks ago, where I wrote an article for the Washington Times, and I said, more laws will not make us a more moral people. We're missing the point. Well, let's dig into that a little bit deeper here. What are the consequences of rearing a generation of moral amputees? Ask yourself that question, this, this idea of severing the organ and then demanding the function. I mean, we actually have cut out the soul of our progeny because we tell them that they're soulless animals. We laugh at the very concept of a soul. A soul implies that you are spiritual. You're not just animal. That you are the Imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. That soul that has the thumbprint of God's ways, God's rules, God's truth, imprinted on your heart and mind. That's the soul that makes you different than the animal. Your dogs and your horses and your cows don't have that moral awareness. I don't know anybody in their right mind that lives in rural America that would argue differently. Uh, You know, we love our animals. I do. I've got dogs. I've got horses. I take good care of them. I enjoy them. But they're not human, They don't understand this conversation. They're not going to argue with me or disagree with me. They're not going to debate. They don't have cognitive abilities or awareness to do so. This this interest in listening to a podcast or a radio show or reading an article and deciding whether or not you agree or disagree with it is uniquely human. That awareness is part of your moral distinction that makes you different than the rest of creation. So ask yourself again this question. What are the consequences of rearing a generation of moral amputees, a a nation of characterless children who never grow up, who dodge every difficulty and run away from every conflict and every challenge? Every pain and every sorrow is something to be avoided. That's where we are right now. We've, We've taught tomorrow's leaders to avoid, if not blatantly deny, the hard truths of reality. If you don't feel comfortable with who you are, then just deny the reality of who you are and pretend that you're something that you're not. That's the whole agenda 
of the subjective identity claims. Forget the sexual immorality or morality of the discussion. Just look at the denial, the denial of truth that's endemic in that entire agenda that we're celebrating with pride right now for an entire month of June. Rather than facing the adversity of growing up, of going through adolescence and becoming a man or a woman and deciding to take on the responsibility of who you are and take it on with courage, our nation's next generation, uh, and they will be congressmen and senators and CEOs and presidents of companies and of our country, they now cower. This generation that we've raised up cowers in campus counseling centers that literally have Play-Doh and bubbles and puzzles and coloring books for 18 to 21-year-olds to make them feel comfortable. (laughs) I'm not interested in them feeling comfortable. We've talked about that. But that's what we've done. That's what we've done in our schools. So why are we surprised at their lack of ability to deal with reality? When we coddle our kids, we may mean well, but the result isn't good. We've got a culture of perpetual adolescents who are crippled morally and intellectually, and they're incapable of wrestling with the inevitable adversities of life. So what do they do? They strike out. They get angry. They get self-righteous. They get selfish. They scream and they pout and they cancel people. And then you find, as I've shared with you in a previous show, that a quarter of today's college-age Americans believe that it is acceptable to use violence to silence someone who disagrees with them. Do you see the, the fact that when we are cutting out their soul and teaching them to continue to act like children, and we reward them for doing so by giving them counseling centers when they're in college with Play-Doh and bubbles and puzzles and coloring books and videos of frolicking puppies. And in one university in the Northeast, I can't remember if it was New Hampshire or Maine or somewhere up there, may have been Connecticut, they actually brought in a petting zoo during finals week with baby goats so that the college students would have something cute and cuddly, to comfort them during the adversity and the challenges of taking a test. This is leading to the insanity that we see in the daily news. You might say, well, what what does that have to do with some kid acting violently? Well, again, If he is the measure of all, if he's the center of his world and somebody has offended him, and when you know 25% of the students I'm talking about, for whatever reason, have concluded that it's acceptable, if not a moral good, to use violence to silence those that have made them feel uncomfortable with a challenging idea, why in the world are you surprised by their behavior? They will inevitably, all of us inevitably, will behave as we believe. At the end of days, we will all essentially start practicing what we preach. You can't avoid the ideas that you've imbibed throughout your life, throughout the course of time. You can't avoid the inevitable consequences of those ideas. So let's talk about a pastor right now. 
I, I'm not sure if he's still the pastor of this church because I read this article a couple of years ago. Uh, so if he's moved on, uh, so be it. But I want to talk about the Reverend George Rutler, who at the time I read this article was the pastor of St. Michael's Church in New York City. Now, he nailed it. He recognized exactly what I'm saying right now, the cultural impact of our pampering and our coddling of our, of our progeny, our, our, our kids, our next generation of voters. He said this, the average age of a continental soldier in the American Revolution was one year less than that of a college-age freshman today. Alexander Hamilton was a fighting lieutenant colonel when he was 21, not to mention Joan of Arc, who led an army into battle and saved France when she was about as old as an American college sophomore. In our Civil War, Eight Union generals and seven Confederate generals were under the age of 25. Stop and think about that. The age of most U.S. and RAF, Royal Air Force fighter pilots, in World War II was about that of those on a college junior varsity team. He goes on to say this. Catholics will remember that back in 1571... Don Juan of Austria saved Western civilization as commanding admiral when he was 24. None of these figures, he says, in the various struggles against the world and the flesh and devil retreated to safe spaces weeping in the arms of grief therapists. Close quote. That's a take-home. He recognizes that we're doing something wrong in our schools. All of this talk of self-actualization and subjective identity. Name it, claim it, basically, when it comes to your sexuality, rather than acknowledging the facts. We've reversed the equation of Ben Shapiro, where he says the facts don't care about your feelings, and we basically celebrate and tell our students that the Your feelings shouldn't care about the facts. The real world has always demanded that young men and women step up, often before they thought themselves ready to face reality. These numbers that I just shared with you, the ages of all of these heroes of the ages, these these men and women that actually rescued their cultures and their countries— stood in the face of despotism. They did so in their late teens and early 20s. But yet we've got a generation that lives in mom and dad's basement, playing video games and not reading the things that matter. They're not, they're not taking advantage of the salt and light of the good news of the gospel, of the truth with a capital T, of the revelation of God, of natural law and common sense. All of these things are disparaged by critical theory as being nothing but the products of white privilege. That's not the way we raised the greatest generation that arguably fought for our freedom and preserved it in the face of the Axis powers, Mussolini and Hitler and Hirohito. Our greatest generation fought these things, fought these evils, and they did so for ideals, ideals 
that transcended themselves and their own desires. They weren't selfish. We didn't teach these soldiers that fought on D-Day in Normandy to think about themselves. They thought about something bigger and better than themselves. And they didn't want to turn around and shoot their neighbor. They were prepared to shoot the enemy. There's a difference. They understood the moral difference between the two. The kids we're raising today, by and large, I shouldn't say by and large, there is a stunning number of our kids that we raise today that don't understand the difference. Our our young people today seem to be intent on satiating their every appetite and satisfying their every whim and inclination. And that translates into bad behavior. And in the extreme, that behavior becomes violent. Anything that keeps our burgeoning snowflakes from fulfilling their every desire is deemed and labeled oppressive. You're the problem, not them. The fact that they haven't grown up, the fact that they don't understand good from evil and evil from good, the fact that they think black is white and white is black and up is down and down is up, bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. I'm playing off of Isaiah again, but it's the seminal quote that actually identifies our time. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil, bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Woe unto any culture and country, any group of kids that can't tell the difference. But that's what we've created. On our college campuses across America, we're teaching students that their proclivities should always take precedent over any principles. So if they have a proclivity toward sexual aggression, if they have a proclivity toward sexual delusion, if they have a proclivity toward violence, if somebody disagrees with anything that they want to do, we've taught them that their comfort should always trump self-control and courage. And that doesn't bode well for our fate as a nation. It doesn't bode well for our freedom either. Again, back to Lewis. He, he sounded a warning in his Chronicles of Narnia. I've talked about it before, the Silver Chair, the fifth book in his children's series, the Chronicles of Narnia. The Silver Chair is the fifth book. There are three main characters, Jill and Scrub, and then there was this third character. He was called a Marsh Wiggle, and his name was Puddleglum. For those of you who haven't read the book, it he was kind of a, a man with, uh, he was a swamp creature. So he was a man, a human, with big webbed feet, a marsh wiggle, um, kind of an endearing character. We could go into describing him further, but that's really not the point right now. But Aslan, you know who he is, the Christ figure, the mighty lion, he meets with the kids, and he instructs these three people, the Jill and Scrub and then the Marshwiggle, I guess a person, if that's what you want to call him, he instructs them as they venture into a dark underground world underneath Narnia, where they're in search of a, of a prince who's being held captive by an evil witch. The prince's name is Rillian. Well, they find the prince in a dark and dank cavern underground, and he's tied to a silver chair, thus the title of the book. And the The chair has mysterious powers over the prince. It's keeping him captive. He's been brainwashed 
by the witch's incantations and the power of the chair to believe that the witch, the evil character in the story, is his ally and not his captor, and that darkness is light and light is darkness and that bondage is freedom and freedom is bondage. He's been brainwashed to believe up is down and down is up, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter, that good is evil and evil is good. He's been brainwashed into delusion. The, the kids, Jill and Scrub, and then Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle, they actually run into this cavern and they untie the prince. And then they're, they're ready to escape, to get away from the witch before she returns, but it's too late. The witch is there and she catches them. And they, they can't get out. They can't get out of this dark cavern in the underworld. They want to, but they can't. And the witch starts strumming. She starts strumming a musical instrument. She starts her incantations on these kids. She starts casting a spell on them. And the kids start falling for it. She tells them, she tells them that, well, why do you want to leave? This is the real world. This, this underworld is the real world. And what you're thinking of in terms of going back up there where there's a sun and there's a sky, there's no such thing. That's just make-believe. That's a dream. That sun that you think you remember and that you yearn to return to, that's nothing but a, a lamp on the ceiling of this cave. And that, that character called Aslan that you say rules this grand land of Narnia, this make-believe land, oh, that's, you've just made him up. You, you've, um, you realize that there are cats in the underworld, and you've just created a more grand and glorious monster cat, if you will, that you want to worship. This is all fantasy. This is the kind of stuff she's telling them. And she's casting this spell, and they actually start believing it. They start believing that there's no other world than the dungeon of this cave and that any dreams of sun and any, any hopes for the freedom of what's available to them outside of the cave is just a tale and a children's story. The lamp is the real thing, not the sun. And the ceiling to the cave is the end of all that's real. Any dreams of anything outside the ceiling that, over, that overshadows them is nothing but a delusion. So what's the point? Well, in the midst of all of this, the Marsh Wiggle recognizes that there's a fire inside the cave, and he, he, he recognizes that he can't succumb to this spell, so he walks over and he sticks his foot in the fire, and there's, the shock of pain wakes him up to reality. The shock of pain helps him understand that the witch is lying and that Aslan is real and that the sun is real and that the sky is real and that being confined to the ugliness of his own self-delusion is nothing but bondage and slavery. We've got to recognize that teaching our kids to deal with pain, that it helps them grow up, is the only solution to the problems that ail us. More laws is not going, will not accomplish that. The only thing that will change the course of our nation is not more gun laws, but more moral instruction that's grounded in the revelation of God, the self-evident truths that have been endowed to us by our Creator. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.